morning, Veritas. How are we doing today? We awake? We ready to roll? If we haven't met, my name is Jordan Howell. I'm on staff at Veritas in Cedar Rapids as a college ministry pastor. And I know I look like I'm 18, but my wife Ellie and I have been married just over six years. We have three kids. Our oldest, Blaze, is three. Middle child, Leo, two. And youngest, Silas, is turning five months old this week. So uh, life is crazy in the Howell household. If you think of us at all this summer, pray for us. Pray that summer would be a great time of running off energy and great bedtimes, right? Uh, our oldest two have taken hold of this phrase recently. The phrase is best friend, right? It's super endearing. They'll come home from school and we'll play all night. I'll be putting them down for bad, bed and they'll look me in the eyes and they'll say, dad, you're my best friend. And I'm like, oh. pulls on, pulls on the heartstrings. But then the reality is, you know, weekend rolls around, it's Saturday and they're like, dad, Owlette is my best friend. I'm going to show you Owlette. This is Owlette. This is a plastic toy, a fictional character from the show PJ Masks. Uh, if you have little kids, you've heard of it. But you kind of understand that when my kids call me their best friend initially, it means a lot. But now when they start throwing the term around, it doesn't really mean anything, does it? But this isn't just a three-year-old problem. This is an adult problem too. You know what it's like. Think about the word love. Like when my kids hear me say, Blaze, I love you. Leo, I love you. Or they hear me say to my wife, Ellie, I love you. But then we order pizza and I'm like, oh, I love pizza. Or I love playing outside. It's like, you can see how that'd be confusing to a kid, right? Am I the same as pizza? Just like I'm comparing myself to this toy. Or maybe this word, you've used it before, probably more than you know. Awesome. Let me read to you the definition of the word awesome. Causing or inducing awe, inspiring an overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, or fear. What comes to mind when you hear that word? Hopefully, God. Right? Like, God is awesome. He induces awe. There's an overwhelming sense of reverence when I think about God. But at the same time, we use this word awesome. We throw it around and we talk about sports plays, movies, or vacations the same way we talk about God. It's confusing. How about this word? Christian. Has that lost its meaning? I mean, recent polls and surveys indicate that 64% of Americans call themselves Christian today. But what does that even mean? Like, we've used this term Christian so much that perhaps it's lost its meaning. Does being a Christian mean that it's a part of your family heritage? Is it a political alignment? Does it simply mean that maybe you're more moral than the normal American? Does being a Christian believe that you mean that Jesus was a real person, or maybe that you go to church, like, congratulations, you're here, you're a Christian. Or is it something more than that? I think that there's a ton of confusion around this word, specifically as you think about how the word Christian was first used in Acts 11 in the city of Antioch. The word Christian meant belonging to Christ, or you could say little Christ. And now, in America, in 2023, perhaps the word has lost 
its meaning. I want to give you a few more statistics to prove the point. 56% of self-reported evangelical Christians believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 43% believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but that he was not God. And 47% of practicing Christian millennials, that's my age, age group, Churchgoers who consider religion an important part of their lives believe that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs in hopes that those they share with will become Christian. Whoa! Like, that doesn't sound very Christian to me. If you know your Bible, to say, does this sound like Christianity to you? And today, we're going to continue our Life of Christ series. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 4. So if you have a physical Bible, I want to invite you to open up there. You can put a finger in Luke 5 as well. It's a companion text. We are looking at the disciples of Christ. And as we do, we need to walk away with an answer to this question. What does it actually mean to be a Christian? Or you could say it this way. What does it mean to be a Christian, not just culturally but biblically. That's where we're going today, Matthew 4. So we're in week four of our series. We've walked through the miraculous birth of Jesus, through Mary and the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is born, Emmanuel, God with us. We see that he's baptized by John the Baptist. And then last week, Matthew taught through the temptation of Jesus as he's led by the spirit into the wilderness. And he responds to temptation with what is written in the scriptures. And before we get to today's text, we see Jesus actually inaugurate his ministry. He actually leaves Nazareth and he begins preaching. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we get to today's text, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read it over us. So the word of God says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Just a few short verses as Jesus calls his first disciples, but we have a lot to learn about what it means to be a Christian. I want to point out three of them for, for us today as we just look at this text in Matthew 4. So three marks of a Christian. The first is this. A Christian is somebody that is called by Christ. It's really easy to see in the text, isn't it? Like, how did these men become followers of Jesus? Did they bring all of their fish into the city, into market, and say, Jesus, look how impressive we are. Look at this great catch. And then Jesus is like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You, if you're really good at fishing, maybe you'd be good at something else. No, that's not how it happened. We see Jesus here moves towards these men. He walks by the sea. He speaks to them, and he invites them. But much more than speaking to them, though that would be enough, wouldn't it? If the God of the universe would speak, 
speak to us, I think we'd take it. But Jesus does not just speak to these men. If you look at the companion text in Luke 5, you're going to see that Jesus actually reveals himself as Lord to them. Here's what Luke writes in his gospel. It says, And when he, Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Like, Jesus here does not just speak to them. He reveals himself as Lord to show that he is a master over the seas to the point that when Simon Peter comes before him, he says, I am a sinner and you are Lord. This is the good news of Christianity. It's not that you come to God, but that God has come to you in the person work of Christ. And if you're a Christian in the room this morning, here's what you need to know. The first part of your salvation story does not start with you giving your life to Christ, but rather Christ giving his life for you and then him literally giving you life. Ephesians 2 says it this way, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This means that we are not born a Christian. Christianity is not our default. It's not like, oh yeah, I've always been a Christian. The reality is we are born into death. That is our default. You were born into being dead in your trespasses and sins. But here's what's also true. Verse 4, we have to keep reading. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Notice here that God does not love us because of the great love with which we loved him, but the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. In the chapter right before this, God says it this way, Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Wow. That should amaze you that before the foundations of the world, God would look at you and would say, I'm choosing you to be a child of God. Wow. Why? Is it because we're impressive? Is it because we have so much to offer God that he's like, oh, of course I'm going to choose you. You are the chosen one. Like, come on. We're not that impressive, are we? 
we're meeting in a high school gym in Urbana, Iowa. Like, we're not that impressive. If you know yourself well enough, you're not that moral. (laughs) If you're like me, you probably got irritated or complained about something this morning on your way to church or out the door. It's not because we're the most intelligent or wealthy. I mean, I got my degree from Iowa State University. I'm not Harvard or Yale material. You probably aren't either. And when it comes to money, I couldn't afford a studio apartment in New York. Like, none of these are reasons that God would choose us. It's not because we're impressive or intelligent or wealthy. No. Because who does Jesus call in our text? Matthew 4, who does he call? Does he come to the princes? Does he come to the powers? Does he come to the religious elite? No. He comes to fishermen. Really ordinary dudes. And maybe, just maybe, God knew what he was doing when he showed up on a day after they failed. Like they spent all night trying to catch fish and they caught nothing. Maybe that was on purpose. Like maybe God actually said, hey, Jesus, I want you to go choose these men on a night when they have nothing to boast in. It's amazing. So if you feel like you deserve to be called by God, if you feel like you deserve to be a Christian, the reality is you're missing it. You don't understand who our God is. But I think the opposite is also true. Many of you walk in this room this morning and you feel like there is no way that God would choose you. You look back at your last week or last year or last decade and you're like, no way would God want me. But here's what's true. You are exactly who God is looking for. If that's how you feel, you are exactly who God is looking for. 1 Corinthians 1 says it this way. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is amazing. Like, Christianity genuinely is a come-as-you-are religion. Like, bring me your mess. Come to me. All who are weak and foolish and lowly, like, you are who the Lord of the universe wants. Come as you are. But I have to tell you, Christianity is a come-as-you-are religion, but it is a not a stay-as-you-are religion. This takes us to our second point. A Christian is somebody that follows Christ. Somebody that follows Christ. You talk about another word that's maybe lost its meaning over the last decade. Follow. Like social media era where you can just go online and click follow. Whether you're following... uh, YouTube channel or following a social media page, follow has lost its meaning. It's become something that we just click on, a button to click on, and things just start showing up on our online feeds. But it really doesn't impact our life, does it? 
I mean, maybe it's just me, but I don't need Chick-fil-A pizza recipes or Christian memes. That really doesn't impact me. But it's a page I follow. And that is not what it means to follow Jesus. He's not just a tag on to your otherwise ordinary life. In fact, the word disciple here in this text means student or learner. Someone who adheres completely to the teachings of another, making them his rule of life and conduct. And the word follow in this text actually implies following behind. Disciples in this day and age would follow behind their master, number one, out of reverence. We talk about this word awesome. Out of reverence and respect, they would follow behind their master, but also they would stand behind their master so that they could see and imitate his life. So yes, Jesus comes to us, he calls us, he invites us, and he says, follow me, imitate me. But after this invitation comes a promise. In verse 19, he says, follow me, and I will make you. Did you catch that? It's a promise that Jesus is saying, if you are my follower, I promise you, I will change you. I will transform you. If you are called by Jesus, you will be changed by Jesus. Over 550 years before Jesus was born, God actually spoke through a prophet by the name of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was given this message from the Lord to speak to a sinful and hopeless people that were in Babylonian captivity. And he he was told to speak of this new covenant that would come true in the person work of Jesus Christ. God through Ezekiel says this in Ezekiel 36. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is an amazing promise. That God through Ezekiel would say, here's what's going to happen in the new covenant. By faith, I am going to remove your sinful, selfish heart And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh that longs to obey God. Is that good news? Yeah. He's like, I'm going to change your desires to now want to follow God. But that's not all. He does not just change our desires. He gives us the power we need to be transformed. He gives us the power we need to obey. Did you see that in Ezekiel 36? He says, I'm not just going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's why when Jesus was about to die and ascend into heaven, he told his disciples, it is better that I would leave, that the helper would come. He was speaking of the Holy Spirit. That it would no longer be God walking alongside of us, but God living inside of us. That God would give us the gift of his spirit to do the transforming work in us. But here's what's true. If you follow Jesus for any amount of time, 
it's not all rainbows and butterflies, does it? Like, is it all it's chalked up to be? <laughs> we talk about change and transformation. We're like, yes, but it's costly. It requires sacrifice. Do you notice what the disciples had to give up to follow Jesus? I mean, Peter and Andrew leave their job. James and John leave their job and their dad. It says they left their father and followed him. Luke 5.11 says it this way. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything and followed Jesus. You see, following Jesus requires forsaking. It requires a level of dying. If you flip just four chapters to the right, Luke 9, Jesus says it this way. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You want to follow Jesus? You want to be changed by Jesus? Here's your invite. Die. Like, die to yourself. Die to your comfort. Die to your control. Die to your selfish dreams, ambitions, desires. Taking up your cross daily is not picking up a necklace off your nightstand. It's, it's putting on an instrument of death. That's what the cross was to these people. An instrument of death and shame to pick up your cross to say, I will do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. I will give up whatever it takes to follow Jesus. Sounds awful, doesn't it? <laughs> to sacrifice? But what if I told you the definition of sacrifice is this? A surrender of something of value as a means of gaining something more desirable. Now it starts to make sense, doesn't it? Why these men would not just leave their boat, they would not just leave their family, but they would leave it immediately. (laughs) They're catching a bigger and more desirable vision for their life to say, oh, I get to follow God. Of course, I will give up everything to follow him. Something more desirable is at hand. In fact, Jesus himself knew what this was like. Hebrews 12, the word of God says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, catch this, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Like, you're telling me that Jesus would joyfully, like, gladly fix his eyes on crucifixion, which is the most humiliating and excruciating form of human death known to mankind. That he would joyfully look at the cross where he would not only die in your place, but that he would take the full wrath of God on his head and he would do that joyfully? How? How could Jesus do that? Well, it's because he understood that this was sacrifice. Yes, atonement. 
but it was also sacrifice, meaning he's giving up something of value, his very life for the sake of something greater, which is this, eternity. That he would be seated at the right hand of the throne of God and that he wouldn't go alone. Jesus could joyfully look at the cross because he knew not only would he resurrect and ascend to heaven, but that he would save us and take us with him. That's why Jesus can joyfully look at the cross. And now he's inviting us to do the same. He's saying, sacrifice everything. Die to yourself. Die to your desires. Die to your dreams. Die to your ambitions. And follow me. Not only to be saved by God, not only to be changed by God, though those are two amazing realities. No, he says, die to yourself and be used by God. Which brings us to a third mark of a Christian. A Christian is somebody that lives to advance Christ's kingdom. Somebody that lives to advance Christ's kingdom. Jesus promises not only that he's going to transform them, but he's going to transform them into fishers of men. Maybe that's a confusing term to you, but here's what Jesus is saying. You're not just going to get on a boat every day and catch fish for the sake of your earthly comfort. I'm going to send you as a disciple maker to now share the good news of the gospel, to speak on behalf of the king and offer other people eternal life. This is the invite to the purpose we've all been longing for. We all want to make a difference in this world, in this life. We've been given one. We all want to make a difference. But this is an invite to something more than a paycheck or a pat on the back. Like, let's be real. We don't really want to just go to work for an income. We don't want to just parent so that we have nice kids. We don't want to just go to school so that we can one day get a degree or play sports to win a game. Because when we do all of those things, we're still left wanting more. The reality is we were made to make a difference for the sake of eternity. And Jesus is now inviting us. He's saying, hey, take your ordinary day and let's add some eternal impact on top of it. Like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and with me push back the gates of hell. I want you to go and speak the truth of the gospel and watch people that were spiritually dead become spiritually alive. I want you to see somebody's life changed, not just for the next 10, 20, or 40 years, but for the sake of eternity. That one day you will stand arm in arm with people in heaven who will say, thank you so much for speaking the truth of the gospel into my life. That is what we're invited into. God chooses to use us. And you have to understand that this is the common theme in the Bible. That individuals who have a real life-changing encounters with the God of the universe, go. They live sent. They are people that share the truth of the gospel, right? You look at Peter's response in Luke 5. I am a sinner. You are Lord. I'll go with you, no matter what the cost. Reminds me a lot of Isaiah 6. A man with unclean lips who has an encounter with God. God touches his lips with a hot coal changes his life. And Isaiah is standing there. God's like, I need someone to go. Isaiah says, here am I, send me. 
Like, this is the normal theme in Scripture. And you might think, well, Peter, Ezekiel, Isaiah, like, you're talking about apostles and prophets, Jordan. What about someone like me who lives in Brandon, Iowa? Like, what about me? Well, what about the woman of the well, John 4? She encounters God in a very real way, and she runs back to the city and says, come meet this man who's told me everything about myself. She cannot help but speak. What about the demon-possessed man in Mark 5? Jesus is about to hop on a boat to leave, and he says, please let me go with you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want you to go home and tell everybody about what God has done for you, and he does. This is the normal response. The reality is, Veritas, we share what we're satisfied in. And you know that to be true. Like when people bump into me, if, if we were to talk right after service today, here's what would probably happen. If you asked me about the NBA draft, I would know what to talk about. <laughs> and I'd be excited to talk about it because I love sports. I talk naturally about the things that I am excited about or the things that I enjoy. But the question is, if someone bumps into me, will Jesus spill out of my cup? Will I share Jesus the reality is the only, the only way that I can share about Jesus truthfully and joyfully is if I'm satisfied in him, right? Sharing about Jesus is the overflow of being satisfied in Jesus. That's just what's true. And I love this example of fishing, right? That Jesus says, hey, I'm going to make you fishers of men. What a great analogy for evangelism. I don't know the last time you guys went fishing. I went last weekend with my nieces and, and my boys, and I will say, fishing is a miserable hobby. If you want, like, instant gratification or control, terrible hobby, right? But if you're okay with patience and playing the long game, it's amazing. It's peaceful. It's relaxing. But just think about fishing with me for a moment. And we're, we're not talking, like, do you have the right bait or the right lure? Like, these men were casting a net, Here's what, here's what fishing required for them. Number one, they had to go. They had to get near, get on a body of water. So if you want to make an impact for the kingdom of God, here's what you need to do. You need to go. You need to get around darkness. You need to be around people that don't know Jesus. You have to go. And then number two, here's what they had to do. They had to cast, cast their nets. And that for us is literally speaking the truth of the gospel, to just speak truth. Cast your net, cast it wide. Like in the parable of the sower, we're, we're compared to somebody that's scattering seed. To just be seed-sowing fools and to say, I'm just going to share the gospel wherever I go. I'm just going to cast a huge net. But then what do these guys do? After they cast out a net, what do they do? They wait. You could say they trust they go, they cast, and then they trust. Because here's what's true. You and me, we don't have the ability to change a human heart. We just don't. I mean, we talked about that at the very beginning. You don't even have the ability to change your own heart. Why are you putting pressure on yourself to change somebody else's? We go towards people that don't know Jesus. We share the truth of Jesus. And then we trust in the gospel to do the work. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who hear. That we would just go and cast 
and trust. This is what it means to live sent for Jesus. And so you want to know what a Christian is. You want to know what a disciple is, a follower of Jesus is. You can say it this way. A Christian is somebody that is called by Christ, follows Christ, and lives to advance his kingdom. Somebody that is called by Christ, follows Christ, and lives to advance his kingdom. And maybe you're looking at the last two marks and you're like, man, I don't know if I'm a Christian, right? It's hard for me to look at my life and see how I've changed or see how I've been transformed. Or maybe as you hear me talk about this natural response to somebody that's encountered God being somebody that goes and shares about Jesus, and you're like, man, I have never shared the gospel once. You might be asking the question, am I a Christian? Well, let me just tell you, I don't, I don't care about dates. I don't care about altar calls or times that you came and supposedly placed your faith in Christ. It's not about a date. It, it is about, have you believed in Jesus? Have you answered the call? Right? Because whether that was 10 years ago or whether that's today, the reality is he's calling. He's looking at you. And maybe in a moment of conviction or after a week of failure, much like these fishermen, you're in a right place to say, wow, I want to see the hand of God move in my life. And I'm begging you, answer the call. Place your faith in Jesus. Stop trying to clean yourself up to come to him and trust you can come to him as you are. But secondly, don't stay as you are. Follow Christ. Like, what is a command that you know is in the Bible that you're having a hard time obeying? Would you trust him? Would you trust that if he, he's called you from a place of weakness and foolishness, that he actually knows what's best for you? What are you being asked to forsake for following Jesus? I mean, we all know that one thing where it's like, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll do anything. Just don't take this from me. Really? Is he Lord? Is he master? Does he have all of your life? This invitation to say, all of life, everything. Are you open-handed with the Lord? And then lastly, to advance the kingdom. We are all sent people. We are all sent people. This church exists because of sent people. People who forsake Cedar Rapids, forsake great friendships, in a church that they love to say, I want to go somewhere new and see the kingdom advance in a new place. Good on you. All of you who stepped in and said, man, I want to see the kingdom advance in Urbana. Thank you. Because eternity is going to be more full. Heaven is going to be more full because you put your yes on the table. But the mission isn't done just coming and starting a new church. Though that's obviously part of it. We want to be a church that plants churches, but we also want to just live as everyday missionaries. People that are not sent to new cities or new states or across the world, though we obviously hope to do that too. We want to be people that are sent across the street, across the hallway at work. People that cannot help but see everyone we interact with as somebody that's created in the image of God to know him and enjoy him forever. And that we would then open our mouths and say, can I tell you about how my life changed? And that you would begin to speak the truth of the gospel. Who is God sending you to this week? 
And you want to know what it looks like to live this out? I mean, we don't really have to guess. We don't need a crystal ball. We have the book of Acts, chapter 4. <laughs> and the sweet thing about Acts 4 is you see two guys that were in Matthew 4, Peter and John, and they're living in light of this changed reality. Here's what's true. They've gone. They've been doing ministry. They've proclaimed the good news of the gospel. And here's what Acts 4, 3 says. And they arrested them. These men were arrested for following Jesus. Do you think it cost them something? Absolutely. But keep reading. Here's what else happens. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Think it's worth getting arrested? 5,000 people believing in Jesus? Throw me in jail. Come on. And here's what is said about these men. In verse 13, when the religious elite saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Would that be said of Veritas Urbana? That people would just look at our congregation and they would not say, wow, look how impressive they are. Look how polished they are. Look how much they know. No. Would we just be ordinary people who've been with Jesus? And if people tell us to be quiet, to stop talking about Jesus so much, would we answer like Peter and John? They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. That we would not be silenced. Ordinary people who've been with Jesus that are so satisfied in him that we cannot help but speak. And as we just cast our nets, that we just trust that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. That God has the power to save and that he's going to use us, weak, foolish, lowly people, to advance his kingdom, all for his glory. Amen? Let's pray together. Yeah, God, you alone are awesome. And I confess that I use that word far too loosely for far too many things. You alone are awesome. Thank you for calling me. Thank you for calling so many in this room. In our failures, in our flaws, in our weakness and foolishness, God, we recognize that we cannot boast in ourselves, but that we must boast in you. And thank you that you, you don't just call us to leave us as we are, but that you do the transforming work in us. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Holy Spirit, that you would change our desires and give us the power we need to say no to sin and to live for you. And God, that you would use uneducated, common people to advance the kingdom of God, to push back the gates of hell and to see lives forever changed, all for your glory. We pray that you would do that in us and through us this week as we prepare to go from this place satisfy us, Jesus, in a way that we cannot help but speak of you. We pray this in your name. Amen.